Before we go to God's Word, let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you, for you have been our faithful God, sure to deliver us from sin and death, and sure to walk us in this life in godliness and righteousness according to your good purpose. And through our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit, would you come again and remind us of true things and drive out the worldliness that may be uh, still lingering in our minds. Help us, Lord, that we may attend your word with trust and faith, that we may look for the fruits of your word in our lives even as we go from this place. Lord, weakness stands to preach and weakness sits to listen. Holy Spirit, come and work in spite of all of us, that you may be glorified and that Christ may be exalted, and we ask it all for his sake. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Our text is a little bit more than what's printed, and I know that's unusual, and I'm sorry. Uh, Usually we're taking away from what's printed. We're going to read Romans chapter 2, beginning in 17, down through verse 24. So Romans uh, Romans 2, 17 through 24. Hear the word of God. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and now the proclamation of his holy word. You remember Paul's been talking to a hypothetical Jew. All since the beginning of of chapter 2. He's been bringing the the morally religious person into the the broader conversation. The one he began in the middle of chapter 1 addressing the immoral pagan people in the world and and charging them and reminding them and accusing them of being uh, unrighteous and ungodly in the face of of God and His law. They had no way to stand before the righteousness that God requires. And Paul begins there in chapter 2 and says, it's not only the immoral pagan people of chapter 1 who need the gospel. Even religious moral people need the gospel. And here in verse 17... Paul finally points the finger directly. We've, we've been reading with, with, a, with a knowledge of 17 coming. We've, we've known that it's a Jew. But now Paul finally says it outright. You call yourself a Jew. He's, he's identifying the man by name and, and begins, if he can, still even further to narrow in on the heart of the matter that's still at work in, in the life of 
of, of religious Jews of his day who still refused to receive the gospel. And there's two, two main things that happen here in this passage. First, Paul speaks very plainly to this Jew, and, and he shows them all of the moralistic places that they put their trust and hope. And Paul can speak rather authoritatively on these matters because Paul was a Jew himself, converted to the true gospel, converted to the, the gospel of the Jews, if you will, that was proclaimed in the Old Testament and, and brought to bear in the New. And he can speak to these Jews who have yet to turn to Christ and, and point at their idols. He can point at the things that they trust to save them, even though they won't. It's a little ironic, maybe a little sarcastic, but he's certain, it, it, there's a little tongue-in-cheek going on because he's, he's saying, you trust in these things and you rely on these things, but the truth is that they're, they're unreliable in and of themselves. That, that they, they will not fulfill the promises that the Jews think that they will bring to them. You know, their possession of the law will not save them. These things cannot be trusted in. But the unbelieving Jew, and Paul's accusation, continues to rest and lean upon them. And after he identifies these things, he proceeds to ask these rhetorical questions that, if, if you're reading them rightly, you can understand. They're really just accusations. He's just pointing the finger even further. He's just, he's just getting a little more in their face, saying, you know, you, you claim these, these outward things that you have, but you just presume that they'll save you and you live like you want. And you just act like all the pagans in the world. He says, you, you claim to love the law, you boast in the law, but you break it. And what's ultimately happening is that these unbelieving Jews are showing that they don't really love God's law or love God, but they hate God and they hate His law and they love themselves and would rather trust in external things than realize that they need a heart change that only the Lord can provide. In their privileges, the Jews are tempted to think that they do not stand in need of saving grace. I'm going to say that again because it's a, it's, a, it's a phrase that will translate very well to our current context. In, in all of what they had, in all of their privileges, in, in, in the word of God that had been handed to them, in the covenant that had been handed down from generation to generation to them, the Jews are tempted to think that they do not stand in need of saving grace because of the external realities that are true of them. And so these verses also challenge us to ask the questions that Paul wants them to ask. What is it that you are trusting in? What is it that you are leaning upon? What is it that you are relying upon besides Christ and His gospel? Because Paul will say it, not so outrightly here, that the only way of salvation is through Christ and His gospel. And he presses the point here. Remember, in the broad scheme of this chapter and the one before and the one coming after, he's trying to, to convince us that we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. And so he's pressing in. And finally he's saying, listen, you, you may think you'll be saved by something that you do or believe or value, but none of these things will save or deliver. You know, is it for you just being good? Or going to church 
Maybe just as long as you can be better than somebody else, you know, fill in the blank, whoever that may be, a, a person or a group of people or kind of people. As long as we can look a little better than the world, we'll, we'll be fine, we may believe. Paul here, and it ought to feel this way, he is still just piling up arguments to break down any resistance that we may have to the truth that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. Ligon Duncan phrases it this way. He says, Paul in these verses is rooting around in the inventory of our lives to find all the things other than Christ and the gospel on which we are relying. What he does first, we've already talked a little bit about it. It's 17 through 20. He gives us a list of all these false hopes that the Jews relied on. And then secondly, in, in 21 through 24, he, he presses these accusing questions and comes to a verdict in 23 and 24. Verse 17 begins, You call yourself a Jew. So he's formally identifying the man that he's been arguing with. It's not a particular person, but a, a generic title there. And verses 17 and 18 are this collection of sort of... Uh, ironic privileges. You know, it almost should feel a little silly that Paul's going through all of this because we kind of know what he's going to say when he finishes. He's exposing their hypocrisy. Look at verse 17 again. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, and then he, he, he establishes that they know these things because they are instructed from the law. They call themselves Jews, and at the, at, the, at the outset, we should say, that's not a bad thing. It crept up in Second Kings somewhere to call them Jews. It's, it's not a negative title. Paul's not being mean. It's a good thing. It, it identified them with the true and living God. It identified them as members of the covenant that God had made with, with their forefathers and, and was continuing along through the end of the ages. And it was good to be called a Jew, but, but it became for them this proud title. I'm a Jew. It put them up on a higher pedestal in their own minds. It, it, they, they took it and they used it to elevate themselves. And Paul follows that accusation. You call yourself a Jew. He follows with, with four perceived advantages that the Jew had. You call yourself a Jew, and here's some examples of what this brings to you. First, what does he tell them? You rely on the law. The Jew rested on the law. He relied on the law. And at first glance, that might not sound like such a bad thing, but, but in the overall context and the way we know Paul's interacting with this man, he's accusing him of being confident that his salvation was assured because he possessed the law as a member of the covenant. Because he was a part of the people that had been connected at some point back to Moses who received the law at the mountain. And it was passed down through the generations. You rely on the law. You trust the possession of the law to save you. All of their lives would have, would have looked like this. They, they possessed the law. They would have had it in their books. They, they would have heard it read in, in the, 
the synagogues from week to week, it became this badge of honor that they would wear. Maybe so much to the point that they expected that when they get to heaven, they'll just flash their law badge and God will let them in. They presumed upon it. They relied upon it. But then he also says, secondly, and you boast in God. Now, that phrase may sound somewhat familiar. It's not a horrible phrase. It's not a bad phrase. There are places in Scripture that use it properly, um, right? There's a, there's a boasting in God because we're thankful for who He is and for what He's done for us. There's a boasting in God that, that praises Him for His goodness and His mercy. Paul's, uh, not Paul, uh, David in Psalm 34 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. What's he saying? He's saying, I, I don't boast in myself, I boast in the Lord. My, my praise is to Him, I'm reliant upon Him. But that's not what Paul's saying about these people. The words that Paul chooses to use here suggest an idea of, of finding glory or taking pride in something. It, it's not a deferment of glory, it's, 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 a, it's a seeking after glory. Jeffrey Wilson says, the Jew, worst of all, in boasting that his nation was the sole recipient of divine favor, transferred to himself the glory that belonged to God alone. And it's really rather silly and foolish, isn't it? But it's something that we, we may fall victim to. Boasting in what has been bestowed upon us. It's really ridiculous. It's foolish that you find pride in something that you wouldn't have if somebody hadn't given it to you. We should be careful in our own experience of, of our salvation in Christ and our own experience as members of the covenant as these Jews were. Not to somehow think that it puts us above or beyond anybody else. Not to, not to think somehow that our belonging to the covenant of God makes us better or more worthy when the very thing that qualified us to be a part of the covenant in the first place was that we are unworthy. What's he say next? This is the beginning of 18. And you know his will. The idea there of knowledge is just that, um, that they've acquired something over repeated exposure to it. If you think that we're good at catechism in the Presbyterian church, boy, to be a Jew and to memorize some things. They could memorize some things. But you see what he's saying? You, you know his will. You know that which God wants you to do. How did they know it? Well, because they had memorized and memorized. How do you glorify God? Well, you love him. And you do what he commands, right? We know. We know. But there's implied irony here, right? You know his will. What's Paul's point? It's, it's possible for a hypocrite to have a great deal of knowledge about God. It's possible for you to have a great deal of knowledge about what God wants and yet still not follow that way. 
there in the middle of 18 is his fourth statement. He says, you approve what is excellent. That's a good translation, but, but think about it in your mind. Um, they approve things that, that matter. They approve things that are good. They, they approve things that are important. They, they approve things, as it says, that are excellent. Um, that is that they, they have a good understanding um, between those things that are excellent and important and good. They understand the difference between those things and everything else. Why? Because they've been trained in the law of God. They understand that there's good and evil, that there's obedience and disobedience. They understand the distinction. They had the law close at hand, right? They, they could study and read and put into practice and distinguish the right way to go from the wrong way to go. But the implication here is that even then they still did not go the right way. They still refused to follow the promises of the Old Testament unto Christ. And they thought that maintaining the law would be some kind of deliverance to them. And I want you to see that, that all of this that Paul is addressing in them, it's all external. It's all, as he would have said earlier in the passage, it's all hearing and, and seeing and reading. It, it's all external realities. But there's no heart movement in it, right? They, 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 um, it's not, verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law. It, it's not those who simply sit and listen to the law and, and are, are baptized into the covenant of God. It's those who have been so, in, so affected by the Holy Spirit that they've been made new and actually do that which God requires because he's already brought them to himself. It's all these external things upon which they rely. And the end of verse 18 finishes with this phrase that, that points us to where the Jew gets all of this advantage, so to speak. Why? Because you are instructed from the law. Matthew Henry says, that's a rest in the law with a rest of pride or slothfulness or carnal security is the ruin of souls. Just to try to live rightly, just to try to get your name on the roll of a good, decent church, that is not enough, Paul says. It doesn't work. You still lack a righteousness that you can never muster on your own. And so what's he move into there in 19 and 20? It's, it's another list. If only he had had Excel and he could have put them into good little compartments or a nice um, bullet point list in Word. It's another list of four things. Uh, if you think about the first couple of verses as, as, as Paul talking about the way they thought they related to God, now he turns his attention to the way they thought they related to the world, right? It's four obligations that the Jews have to the Gentiles around them. The Jews, um, you know, we, we don't think about it very often. They saw converts to Judaism. There were people that weren't Jews that became Jews. 
And there's an understanding in the Old Testament Scriptures that, that there's a place for converts in their life, that there was a proselytizing that went on, so to speak. You might remember back from Exodus chapter 12, when they're talking about the Passover and how to, how to have the Passover, the Lord says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you, this is a non-Jew, right? If he would be with you and would keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So it was possible for, for Gentiles to come in and be, become recipients of the promise. For them to come in, I mean, think about it, to come into the Passover and to see the picture of the cross and to trust in something that the Jews were trusting in. It was possible for an, an unbelieving non-Jew to come into those promises. There was, there was a role that they had to play in the world around them. But Ligon says that, that, that these, these people viewed themselves so much as having arrived at everything and gotten to where they wanted to be in the world that they thought they were spiritually and morally a cut above everyone else. And so their sole job is to look down and, and maybe instruct everybody else in the right way to go. Not, not to have an inviting sense into the covenant, but to function in a different way. And that's what Paul articulates here as he argues sort of what they should be. But remember, there's a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, see there in verse uh, 19, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, um, that you are a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. I mean, some of these things we see in the pages of Scripture, it's good for them to be a guide to those who need help. Indeed, there were those who were in darkness and needed light. But Paul is saying that the Jews thought about it wrongly, that, that they, the arrogance that they had in the law made it so that they, they really thought, oh, those, those stupid blind pagans, those, those foolish people without darkness, or in the darkness, those, those silly, foolish children that, that we must come and instruct if they have any hope, right? If you think that the law is the way to be saved, then you also believe that in somebody else's instruction in that law is their only hope. Paul's pointing out that it sort of was a bit of irony, like, you, you silly Jews, you're on the same level as them. You don't have any righteousness, just like they don't have any righteousness. And learning the law doesn't help. Verse 20 ends with this phrase that, that speaks back against these four statements in 19 and 20. You see it... Uh, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. All of this, Paul says, all of this you have, you are, as one who has the law embodied. Matthew Henry rightly points out that what Paul is saying is that they have but the show and appearance of it. They only have what appears to be something. He says, those, those whose knowledge rests in an empty notion and does not make an impression on their hearts, they have only a form of it. 
like a picture well drawn and in good colors, but which lacks life. The law was, was a painting hanging on the wall of their home that, that was supposed to be alive and vibrant in their life. It was supposed to bring about a, a, a faith and a, and a coming promise and, and an obedient life as a result of the Spirit at work in them. But it was just dry and dusty and hanging on the wall. No life at all being worked from it in their lives. Because they thought simply by hanging it that that guaranteed their salvation. The Jews trusted in honors that had been bestowed upon them by God. They, they were proud of status and placement. Beloved, what about you? Do you live as a Christian with, with an air of superiority over other people in the world? Maybe you live with an air of superiority over other Christians in the world, over other Christians in this room, because they do this and I don't do that, or, or they don't do this and I do do that. What do you have as a Christian that was not graciously given to you by our God and Father? What do you have as a Christian that you ever could have attained in your own strength? Not a thing. How dare we lord it over other people in our lives? May God help us. Paul sort of finishes out his argument. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit more punchy as he gets to these last couple of verses. He, he cruises through these questions because you can feel the point coming, right? Look at 21. So you then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? You might even read it like, have you failed to teach yourself? While preaching against stealing, have you stolen? You say that one must not commit adultery, but have you committed adultery? You who abhor idols, have you been involved in temples and made money off of them? What's he say? You, you, you presume to have this law, but have you not read it yourselves? Have you not realized that it points to the gospel? That it, that it teaches you your deep sin and depravity and it proclaims to you a need of alien righteousness? Because while you're teaching people not to thieve, aren't you a thief deep down in your heart, Paul says? While you're proclaiming that adultery is an abomination, aren't you an adulterer? While you're, while you're abhorring idolatry out of one side of your mouth, aren't you engaging and benefiting from it on the other? These are, I mean, the, the glaring inconsistencies at play in these questions would have been obvious to even the, the deepest, darkest pagans of chapter 1. There's much more going on deep down in our hearts. But what Paul's doing is he's drawing out sort of what he's already drawn out back if you just look in chapter 2, verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What's his verdict? 23. You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law. That's his conclusion. You 
who love the law so much, as you say, you, you don't even keep it. I want to teach you, I want you to understand that this is more heinous in the sight of God than the pagans who ignored him in chapter 1. They, they have the law, they know the law, they claim to love the law, and yet they break it and sin against it, and, and they hate it truly because they fail to follow it to Christ, and they fail to recognize that it condemns them. And this is heinous in the sight of God. Tim mentioned the larger catechism from behind this pulpit maybe in the last week or two, and I realize it's been such a long time since I've used it, we should pull it out. Larger Catechism 150 asked this question after, after, you know, what, 100 questions going through all the Ten Commandments, and then we get to the section in the Larger Catechism on sin, and 150, thinking about sin, asks, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? Now, to be clear, before we talk about this, every sin, no matter how big or small or in between you think it is, every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, both in this life and in the one to come. But are there degrees of heinousness? Jesus told the one who delivered him over to Pilate that, that there, was, there was some kind of hierarchy. The one who delivered me over has the greater sin. This is what the, the divines say. All transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. That's 150. 151 asks the question that we're all wondering. Okay, what is it that can aggravate a sin to make it more heinous than another sin? And before I get into the point I'm trying to make, just as an example, um, they, they will tell us in that answer to that question that a sin conceived of in the heart is less heinous than a sin conceived of and executed. So when, when, when you uh, lust after a woman, that's a sin, and you shouldn't do it, but when you actually commit adultery with her, that's worse. Okay, is everybody tracking with that? Does that make sense? Another part of the answer to 151 says that we aggravate our sin if we're of greater experience of grace than somebody else, or if we're guides to others, Or if our example is likely to be followed by others? Now, a couple of those apply to a handful of people in the room. But let me assure you that all of you, by virtue of your presence here tonight, are of a greater experience of grace than many people in the world. Certainly than any pagans that have chosen to ignore God. Our sin against him is heinous. When, when we think that we have earned our way by possession of this, or by possession of this, when we think that we have somehow gotten somewhere on our own, we have sinned against God in a great way. Be careful. Don't, don't live like being a Christian excuses your sin. Well, Jesus died for my sin. No. Yes, Jesus died for your sin. That's not, that's not what the nose is supposed to be towards. Jesus died for your sin. Yes, indeed. And he's raised for your justification, and he's waiting for you one day in glory. You are not meant to live a life of sin in Christ, but a life of glory and righteousness in him. 
And so what's Paul's ending conclusion here? 24, as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's saying that, that your life as a Jew, let's just translate it here, our life as Christians is, is, is a matter of our profession. Our, our, the way we live our life before the gospel, recognizing if we're sinners and trusting in Christ by faith, it's, it's a matter of profession, he says. Hypocrisy is blasphemous. Listen to what uh, Jeffrey Wilson says. The conclusion that Paul draws from this damning indictment is that the religious perversity of the Jew caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God. Why? For they judged the character of the deity by the conduct of those who claimed to be his people. When, God, when, when people in the world see us living our lives as good, reformed, confessional Presbyterians, does it honor God or not? Does it make them want to know him or not? Your life is not the determining factor in their conversion. That's not what I mean. What we mean is that when we know God and we love him and we've been brought to him and when we're his and when we trust his word and we walk with him, it shows. And Paul is saying in these Jews, you, you claim to know God, but you know him not. Paul's reasoning for, for sharing these criticisms is something we've talked about a lot so far in Romans Paul doesn't hate the Jews. Some people will write that he does. Isn't it interesting that Paul can be an anti-Semite like 1,900 years before the phrase ever existed? He didn't hate the Jews. He loved them. He was one of them once. Why is he telling them this? Why is he pressing so firmly? Why might the Holy Spirit be pressing so firmly on our own hearts right now? Because... Paul desires the readers of this to come to Christ because he wants them to realize that they are hopeless in themselves and they are hopeless in but a possession of the law. They are hopeless, hopeless without the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer really, isn't it? In Romans chapter 5, in verse 6, you know, what's the answer? If it's not possession of this, if it's not membership here, what's the answer? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God help us that we would see our sin and that we would turn to Christ. And if you've already done that, and I know a lot of you have, may God increase our appreciation of grace and mercy by remembering who we once were and where we've come from and the amazing things that God has done for us. Amen.
O Lord our God, Father in heaven, for the sake of your Son, send the Holy Spirit now to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. This we pray for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.